This is an NAC podcast. NEC Dance with Kathy Levy. Kathy chats with Alonzo King, the founder and artistic director of Alonzo King Lines Ballet, the day of the NEC presentation of Sutra, a work created in celebration of the company's 35th anniversary. I'm so happy to have you here, Alonzo <laughs> King. Welcome back to Ottawa. It's, it's been, wonderful to be here, Kathy. It's great been, to see you again. Great to see you, and I have to apologize for the snow. It is a little early for us on <laughs> November 17th to have the snow, but uh, I hope you're managing okay. Yes, I'm well, and it's nice to see a new addition to this incredible building and oh, facility. It's quite something, eh? I know people uh, now can find their way in a little bit easier, and that includes <laughs> you and all your dancers, I'm sure. It has been a while since you've been here. I wanted to take this chance to... You know, talk a little bit about your roots. Um, I, I love reading about you. I know you were born in Georgia, That's in right. Albany, yes. to a prominent civil rights family. Yes. I'm just curious, your your father was an activist, stood along Martin Luther King Jr. That's right. I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what growing up in that environment was like and how that <coughs> influenced you as an artist. Well, it was actually a, an incredible contrast because my mother and father divorced when I was five years old. So I left Georgia at five. Okay. But I used to go back in the summers to be with my father. Um, and Santa Barbara was idyllic, really tranquil, really, you know, beautiful mountains and ocean. And <clears throat> in Albany, it was in the height of the civil rights struggle. And my father was very close with Malcolm X and with Dr. King who came down to assist him with the Albany movement. My father was the president of the Albany movement. He'd been successful in business, and he turned all of his interests into fighting for a just cause. <clears throat> what was what I take with me from being present during that period was to be around people who were willing to die for what they believed in. And that is incredibly powerful and incredibly intimidating. Mm-hmm. And I'm s- probably something that you still think about all, all the, the time. time because you ask yourself, of course, not when you're a parent, but at other times, what would I give my life for mm-hmm. at any minute ready to die? And so I'd see my father come home with a bloody head, oh going to jail all the time my mother accosted and kicked in her pregnant stomach by the police. Not to be so graphic, but this was the reality, and this was shocking, you know, compared to what was happening in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara was much more <clears throat> tranquil, Absolutely. much more accepting, is Ab- that what you mean? Well, it was just, it was just idyllic, mm-hmm. and it was small, and it hadn't become what it is now, and it was just really mountains and ocean and just simple living. But... I I just repeat myself that when you are growing up and living with people who what they say they want to do, they do. What they talk about that they believe in 
is actually aligned with their actions. And that's not very common. No, it isn't. That's for sure. And it's it's sort of frustrating and also empowering, I guess, that some of these struggles still exist today, but that are, you know, leading, again, communities of young people to try and make change as we go along. And that's what's interesting about planet Earth is that there will always be struggle. That's true. There this will true. always be struggle. How did this lead you to <coughs> discover dance and discover ballet? I well, mean, it wasn't actually a discovery. I always moved and my mother had been an amateur in, in university. Uh, in, in fact, my mother and father met at Fisk University. And she would, she, when I was a kid, she would show me things. And so it was a form of intimacy with her. And I love to move. And it just, when I, in high school, when I had to make a choice, I thought about what do I love the most? Because I was interested in tons of things, tons of things, science. And I thought, you know, what, what gives me the most, what do I enjoy the most? And it was movement because it was like going into another world and then when I, after I made that choice, I realized that science and all the other things that I was interested in were inherent in the discipline. But at first you were a dancer working for others, yes. right? Both in San Francisco and in New York Absolutely. or the other way around. At so S- that's San a very Francisco, diff- New York, um, Santa Barbara, Germany. Yes. What do you remember about those days? What, about like, the dancing days? Yeah, the dancing days and a choreographer who, again, shaped you and maybe led you on that path to being your own creator of your own works. I remember that the <clears throat> times that I spent in class, in training, there was, n- I, I, I can't remember any teacher who was that dedicated and possessed with the love of, of their, whatever they were teaching in high school. And when you got with dance teachers, they were so devoted to the discipline that you were you were charged up to see someone so turned on by the practice of the art itself. It was also very inspiring to be around other people who were on fire. And so this was a different um, energy than the obligatory um, attitude in high school where people were concerned about grades. This was about a devotion to a way of living life. And so it was, the energy was completely different and incredibly infectious and informative. Did you find in your early dancing days that, I love what you say about it being infectious because I think that's part of what still fuels many of us who work in the field <laughs> today. And and that that sense of that being able to take that technique and turn it into something that, as a maker. Yes. That must that must still, I mean, obviously it still fuels you because you're making work every year. Yeah. But do you, do you remember those moments of like really thinking, I could make something, I could be a choreographer? Did you know what that word was for you at that no, time? No, because when I began, I had a very personal relationship with movement. <clears throat> so I didn't doubt. I mean, I was always making up movement right. and it would just come out. So that was a personal language that I began. And so when I got into formal training, it was just like, oh, this is just another language. This is another way of doing what I already do. So I, it's true what you said. I didn't think of it as a, <clears throat> as a job. I didn't even know the word choreographer at the time when I was moving all the time. But I just knew that, <clears throat> that it came easily, that I loved it, that there was a sense of mystery about it, and that the external world seemed to dim. And I was in a much fuller, more evocative place. What do you say about um, this? You know, you're often credited for really contributing to breaking down the stereotypes of ballet, to really being one of the great, 
inventors of contemporary ballet. You know, we talk today in these, we, we try to put dance in all these silos and yes. really it's just about dance and Thank movement, right? Thank you for saying that. Yeah, very much so. I mean, yeah. besides the white ballets that are yeah. really traditional, I think, I think choreographers are just crossing those lines all the time. We'll get to the title of your company, but you know, how do you, what do you feel about how your approach to ballet, a very classical technique, um, has evolved over time? I think that you know a lot of it is ignorance. I think when people when people say classical, in most people's minds, there's a code that classical means white, and they don't realize that in all of the large cultures, classical is an idea. And it's an idea where the community is much more important than the individual. And it's about, it's about symmetry <clears throat> and wholeness, integration. And then there's that romantic idea where the individual is everything, but they both are about dissolving into the universal. Now, another misconception. When we hear the term Padibasque, it's referring to a region where the steppe came from, the pavan, which came from the Moors, the term arabesque. And so what we call ballet is dance. And the, the more precise term would be Western classical dance. And as I said before, every <clears throat> all of the great cultures have their classical dance. And to be very, very blunt, in the classical ideal, there is an aspiration to be a Above human limitations. And so that's addressing spirit. And you see it in all classical forms. Now, the other thing, this idea that the birth of ballet began with Catherine de' Medici is wrong. <laughs> its legacy goes much further. And <clears throat> part of this ignorance is that we come, that most of our Western education, the point is thinking that we have arrived from an inferior past and we are now at the pinnacle of, of civilization. Not true. We, If we look at the pyramids, not just in Egypt, but all over the world, there's pyramids in China, there's pyramids in Mexico, blah, blah, blah. We are looking at people who were spiritual and mental giants. We still haven't figured out how they do what they do. And so there's periods that were much higher evolved than we are now. And the history of what we call Western classical dance was grabbing all the information from other cultures. We forget that the Moors were in southern, were in Spain and parts of Europe for 500 years. And they brought what? They brought mathematics. They brought the zero through India via Persia. They brought <clears throat> um, geometry. They brought architecture, which you'll see in the reflected in, the, in in cathedrals. And so that sharing of information. If we think that dance wasn't involved in it, you know, the the dance. When people, you know, when they think of the the codification in French, all of a sudden it gentrifies a little bit. But no, these are terms. But but my main point is. Dance comes from nature. Pirouettes are whirlpools and eddies. Mm -hmm. The world, the planet Earth is going around the sun in a four day. Da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da, da -da. The planets moves in stars. The tutus are in every primordial culture. Grass skirts, the hula, it's about the eternal circle. That was the tutu. And so the, the commonality is much more alarming than what people think the difference is. And my larger point is that the origin of what we call ballet, which is, you know, a term for dance, 
goes much further back, and this will be understood more when we get away from less fettered minds and people do deeper investigation. Well, I, I love your optimism about the less fettered minds, and, <laughs> but but the comment about investigation, I mean, your answer also just speaks to the incredible curiosity and breadth of knowledge that you pursue. And, and this is something that I'm so impressed with about your work, because you're not just looking to you know, on the surface for themes and things that are feeding you. You're studying mythology, you're studying history. So this is something that's a very ongoing uh, source of inspiration for all of your works, is it not? And you know what I love about it is that this is what dance is. In the relationship with art making, you have to reform yourself, you have to expand the brain, and you want to expand the heart. And so this discipline is is not narrow, it's enormous. Well, your influence in setting up your company is obviously having a huge ripple effect, both in terms of the dancers who are working with you and the work that you create. I hope you you recognize that. And I'm I'm curious to to talk a little bit more about this curiosity that you have for other disciplines and other and other sources of inspiration and how that feeds your work. We can talk about the work you're presenting this weekend, Sutra, but it seems to bleed into everything that you yeah, do choreographically. Abs- absolutely. You're absolutely right. So let's let's talk about Sutra and, okay. and just where that came from for you in this collaboration with this fantastic composer. The um, Zakir Hussain is the master of tabla. And Sabir Khan, his family comes from nine generations of Sarangi players. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is Nine generations. That means his relatives were playing for the Moguls in <laughs> India. Which is, Doing the math backwards, yes. Which is yeah. mind-boggling. Yes, it is. That that's in his lineage. Um, Zakir, he played for Revi Shankar when his father couldn't make it one night, wow. his, who his father was, uh, you know, another sublime master of the tabla. When Zakir was 10 years old, and so he is phenomenal. He and I have done over seven projects together. <clears throat> and in this particular project, I thought I want to go as deep as I can into, because, you know, when you're working together, again, everything is relationship. And with each one, I felt that I wanted to get closer and closer and closer to the idea of the seed sound. Because often when you are listening to any composer as a choreographer, if you are thinking about steps, you're not really listening. You have to get it out of the way, which is the primordial technique. You have to make the vessel empty so that the muse can enter. This is not easy. Talk more about what the seed sound is. Seed sound is, it's like when we talk words, what is the visual meaning before it, in its, when it's um, in a mist of evaporation, before you can condense it into thought and verbally emit the idea? Like the word ma and mama and mother is pretty universal. And so you think, what is that? Where does that come from? And so with the sound, you know, the strike and the peel of, or a note You have to say, I want to smell and inhabit its origin before it comes into form. What is it saying to me without me putting something on it? And so what it really means is absolute listening. Not so easy because if I'm really listening to someone, I really can't have an argument. 
because I put my thought away. <clears throat> if I'm really listening, if I'm partially listening, I can hold on to a rebuttal. But if I'm really listening, I've become that person and I'm drenched and soaking, steeped in what they are saying. And then if they say, and where I go, uh, where, because it takes me a minute. As, as I am with you right now. But, but I, I have to push you on this, if you don't mind. Just of course. how that translates into this collaboration, because obviously Sutra is very much about this very close collaboration you yes, have with Zakir. It is. The term Sutra is um, a sewing together. And it is <clears throat> phrases from deep, ancient, um, spiritual text that can be interpreted a billion ways that can they can have an exegesis that never ends, but they're just little words, little phrases. And so in that sense, <clears throat> it's kind of like an abstraction, which is the exact same dances because or the same thing that algebra is because you have a thought that is so large and you can't really put it in words, so you reduce it to a symbol. And so that means, Kathy, you have to really understand what you're talking about. You have to really understand what the thing is. When the Chinese master says, you have to become the horse before you paint the horse, that means you can't do the appearance of the horse because that's not the horse. You can't do a knockoff. You can't do a copy. You can't do an imitation. So you want to get the essence of the horse. And that takes Again, getting out of the way. You have to really shut up any internal dialogue. You have to, your neurotic roommate who wants to get things done, you have to shut that up and really just be so you're becoming some, you're stepping into someone else's consciousness. And Zakir, you know, because we worked together so much and he brought in uh, Sabir, I, I I had an obsession with with wanting to, you know, not even think Indian. I've worked with a lot of, um, you know, Jason Moran, Pharaoh Sanders, and people say that, they say, oh, these are jazz musicians. But if you talk to them, they don't say that because they're musicians and people label and they category, which is the way the Western mind works, you know, the intellectual mm -hmm. cutting of getting things uh, categorized just like these little boxes back here. And you get the close-up look, but you don't get the big bird's mm -hmm. eye view of the full picture. So when you step back, and that means essence. And so the listening was really about not style, but what is the meaning? And that is how we began to form, to, to form the collaboration. Zakir expressed to me that it would be nice <clears throat> if we could do a work that lasted 60 to 70 minutes because he wanted to do it in the idea of a classical evening where in India, you know, they go on for hours right. and we've done, you know, 40, 45 minute pieces to burn. But, but Zakir wanted a longer work. And I said, let's honor that. Let's do it. And that's why we made Sutra 70 minutes without an intermission. Um, and I, I just wanted to go into the two words that occupy the artists or, and it should be all human beings, the rest of our lives, more and better. I just wanted to dive in more and better. <clears throat> Zakir, when we did our first project together, I was at his house and we were talking about music and rhythms and ideas. And then I heard him singing and I said, oh my God, your voice is so beautiful. Will you sing in this piece? And he said, sure. And he had never sung on stage before. 
And that just felt good. And so he and Sabir in this uh, production, they're singing together. Um, and Zakir has this thing of making the tabla melodic. And so there were just, you know, textures, ideas, and enamored with the entire process, all well, of us. They'll be with us in spirit because we have a recording of the music here in Ottawa, but um, <coughs> it's it's fantastic. I've listened to it and it's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> and I just want to go back to this idea of vessel because, of course, the dancers in your company are beauty beholden. I mean, they're just one after the next, these powerful creatures. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the, the dancers as vessels and how how you define a lines ballet dancer, if you can? Sure. Um, one thing that if you ask anybody, you know, who do you want to work with? A genius. Mm-hmm. You want to work with someone who's tapped into their own genius and yet has the ability to drop it and become a little kid and hold your hand and follow where you're leading. You need both. Because... They may not see where you're leading, and it takes a lot of strength to say, I'm going to put the brilliance of my mind off for a moment and just follow. And so you need both. No not the, no choreographer that I know wants to work with an empty cup, and I certainly don't want to work with Legos. I want to work with people who bring the uniqueness of their own living experience into their movement, people who have a voice, people who are thinking <clears throat> not what they're going to get out of their career, but what can I bring to this art form that no one has before, which is the uniqueness of them? So they have to to go into the deep place. They've begun asking the questions, who am I? Where do I come from? What am I going to do on planet Earth before I leave? And people who are involved in that query, those are the ones I want to work with. Because what are you going to get? You're going to get originals and you're going to get people with deep thought. How do you um, how do you juxtapose that approach onto the rigors of training, the rigors of training for the work? It's your choreography is complicated. The, the you demand a great level of virtuosity from from all the dancers who work with you, as well as depth. It's true. It's it's the it's the recognition, as I see it, <clears throat> that we are a triumvirate of body, mind, and spirit. And so, and in that, there's a hierarchy in that, and that is the mind is above the body. You know, the body doesn't tell the mind what to do. The mind takes the reins of the horses, and the which is the body, and, and guides it. And when the mind goes dull or is exhausted, the spirit enlivens. And so, when you're looking at the artist, those three levels have to be fully participating. In terms of um, technical rigor, there's a point where you kind of take it for granted that they have that they know how to brush their teeth and walk. You know, it just <laughs> it's you know you you get you establish a, a a foundation of technique, but to enhance it, it's mind stuff. What you're really training is the mind and the heart. Risk taking is really important for expansion. Going to places where you're not comfortable is important for expansion. The idea of generosity that I have to give, and I'm not going to limit myself by definition that I'm this or that or I can't do that. And so when you keep that ever in front of the artist, it's challenging, but it's really rewarding. 
Education has also become a very important part of your work. Huge. Um, and you, I, I read that you partnered with the Dominican University of California yes. to create a four-year BFA program. This is sensational. It's wonderful. It's It's been 11 years now. And, and are the, are your dancers also involved in that, or is that something sort of separate it's from the It's separate, yeah. Can you explain how that works? Sure. We, have, um, we started about 10 or 11 years ago a BFA program with Dominican University in San Rafael, California, which is about an hour from San Francisco, and the students bus in to uh, do their ballet classes and and improvisation and study about art in the studios. And in the afternoon, they return to Dominican where they do their academic study. And so it's an opportunity for people who want to continue and get a degree in academics and yet still rigorously have a very severe study of classical training as well as modern. And we also have a a training program for students who are adept, but they're not quite ready to join a company yet. And that is an age group that's really largely overlooked in terms of funding. Very true. Where they're they're trained and they have skills, but they're pre-company and they want to go deeper before they jump out into the world. It's a two-year program that we have that does that. We also have a community program, open classes, and a huge outreach for young children. So it's kind of a gargantuan, the organization. You know, it's I, I find it quite amazing how dance can sometimes really be a key to survival for yes. for people who, you know, haven't found their way or don't know exactly what that talent is. This must you must take great pleasure out of seeing those spirits unlocked through these kinds of programs. Yes? It's incredibly satisfying. And it in really San is. in San Francisco, do you do you teach your own company? Do you still have time to do that? With I all of the don't teach the company like I used to, but I I teach the BFA program about two weeks out of the year, and I teach the ba- the training program about two weeks out of the year, and often I guest. Um, but it's interesting that you're saying this because there was a cultural summit in San Francisco about two days ago, and they asked me to be the keynote speaker. And these are people, it was 101 leaders, mayors, lieutenant mayors from countries from all over the world, London, Singapore, Paris, and this cultural summit is resolving and addressing the world's problems, and they're insisting that culture and art be a part of the remedy. It's really... It's amazing. So amazing. It's fantastic. It feels like it's long overdue, but I'll take it whenever we can get it. Quite amazing. I'm sure. And I'm sure you get asked to do a lot of that, don't you? Yes. Which is fantastic. (laughs) And you probably get asked this question a lot, but could you tell us where the name Lines Ballet came from? Sure. It is from the metaphor for that single word, lines. The line... In a play, in text, the line in progeny from parent on either side, the lines in a mathematical equation, uh, the dots in a painting, the strokes, it is everything in the phenomenal world when your eyes are open is straight line and circle. You can't avoid it. It's in all construction, our bodies, mountains, architecture, be it poor or beautifully done. It's unavoidable. So it's really saying, in essence, that everything is dance, that everything is sound and movement, whether it is war or whether it is kindness and harmony. It is rhythm and motion. We spoke at the beginning before the mics were on about this idea of gratitude. And, you know, you've been... 
you've been doing this a very long time, and I hope you will be doing it for many, many years to come. Um, we're thrilled to have Sutra here this weekend, but I know you're also collaborating and working on so many new projects. Maybe you could give us a hint of a few other things that, uh, a few other collaborations you're grateful for and other projects you have on the go. We just finished a premiere with uh, the Kronos Quartet. I was so thrilled to hear about that. <laughs> and you they, live down the road from each other, don't you? Yes. <laughs> And we've been trying to get together for about six years, but our touring schedules are so insane, but we finally found a a period of time where we could get together. And that is, it was incredible. And David wants to tour it. He said, I don't know if I can play this music anymore without what I saw in front. That's terrific. And it was... They were on the stage with you the whole time? Oh, yes, absolutely. Fantastic. And it was amazing. Um, We're doing another project with Lisa Fisher, I'm working now with Van Ang, who's a Vietnamese composer, and she plays um, the ancient Vietnamese instruments. We're doing a premiere for the spring. Is she in San Francisco? She's she in come- San okay. Francisco, Fantastic. yes. And there, you know, in fact, this was our 35th anniversary. And so in that period, we created Sutra. I created um, the Kronos Quartet, which was called Common Ground. And then I created a premiere for San Francisco Ballet with Jason Moran being the the composer in the symphony playing um, called The Collective Agreement. And so it's been full of creativity. Did you ever think when you had this dream to start Alonzo King Lines Ballet that you'd be celebrating your 35th anniversary? I did not think about that. (laughs) I just thought that I was going to give my life to something and not give up. Well... Thankfully to all of us, you have not given up and Ottawa welcomes you and embraces you. And I'm I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's all for this NEC Dance podcast. Send us your comments and questions by email at necpodcasts at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to NEC Podcasts at necpodcasts.ca. You can also find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre. This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NAC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.